cruise missiles, presumably cruise missiles, hitting Zaporizhia, uh, which is one of Ukraine's major cities. There was a very intensive bombardment um, along the line of contact in Donbass last night. Um, reports of extremely heavy attacks, particularly on the Ukrainian-held uh, city of Bakhmut. Um, uh, as I'm sure anyone who's following this uh, yesterday will be aware of the Ukrainians claiming responsibility for the um, absolutely enormous arms depot explosion in Novokakova, um yesterday, but not much in the way of uh, ground changing hands. Um, the, the British Ministry of Defence says um, Russia is continuing to take these very small incremental advances, but the the general kind of pause in in movement on the ground uh, seems to be holding at the moment. Thank you very much, Roland. Francis, would you like to add to that? Yes, well, it's been uh, another eventful 24 hours. I've wanted to focus a little bit on some of the diplomatic elements that have been taking place um, today and last night. Um, One of the most interesting, which I'll start with, is Russia uh, have said that they will continue to send gas to Europe via Ukraine beyond its current deal, which is due to end in 2024, as long as European countries still want Russian gas and Ukraine's national transit system works. Now, on the face of it, it sounds fairly innocuous, but this is clearly in the same week when uh, annual maintenance, in inverted commas, is taking place on Nord Stream 1, which is having which is you know having a major impact on uh, on supplies of gas to countries particularly Germany which I'll turn to in a moment this is clearly a, a, an attempt by Russia to flex its muscles and say you know we're we're very happy to continue to provide uh, you with energy if you if you want it you know this war could be over tomorrow but it will be reliant on us still being able to operate within Ukraine so uh, a, a clearly um, pr- provocative statement there i wanted to mention germany because um, the we had a piece in the paper yesterday, and it's still online today, which I highly recommend people read by um, distinguished journalist Daniel Johnson, who just points out to for the benefit of of, of leaders in Brit- uh, of readers in Britain and also um, more broadly around the world, just quite how severe the situation is in Germany as a consequence of being reliant on Russian gas and oil. So, just to put this in perspective. Um, it's the I mean, some of the figures here are just absolutely shocking. So Germany is facing potentially the worst slump um, since the 1940s, with the economy shrinking by more than 12 percent and production in the flagship car economy collapsing by 17 percent and up to six million jobs at risk. Now, on top of this, you've got, like many other European countries, family fuel bills already set to rise by 2000 euros per year. And there's. But due to this, there are plans to have to provide emergency accommodation in town halls for those who are unable to heat their homes. Um, There's also talk about the government telling people to spend no more than five minutes in the shower or potentially sharing a bath with a friend. I mean, this is remarkable for Europe's foremost economy. And I just wanted to highlight this and and say, you know, that as, as Daniel makes clear in his piece, Germany sort of once admired and and envied is now a sort of textbook example, really, of how much damage a misguided foreign and energy policy can do. So I thought that was a, an interesting um, development in light of the energy front line, which, of course, we've talked about a lot on this podcast in the past. Something else that's just relevant to this, and I just wanted to provide another update, 
on another front line, which, of course, is the food front. Um, now, uh, we didn't touch on this much last week, but it has been an ongoing issue, clearly, within the United Nations. Previous discussions have been taking place that have been suggested there might need to be some sort of military option, such as the severity of um, of the nature of the food crisis. And indeed, we spoke yesterday briefly about the burning of crops, which Russia, Russia is undertaking in Ukraine, clearly again to help um, uh, increase its sort of chances of putting pressure on, on foreign countries to, to end this war prematurely. Um, but the development on this is uh, Russia, Ukraine and Turkish military delegations are set to meet UN officials in Istanbul for talks on a possible deal to resume the safe exports of Ukrainian grain from the Black Sea port of Odessa. Now, uh, obviously, this will have to be a, uh, a very serious and high level conversation between all parties, because without there being a discussion, it would be quite possible that there would be ships, ships that would be potentially uh, in the firing line um, and would be eligible to being being sunk. Um, and so obviously trying to avoid that at all costs. Um, apparently the concern for the Russians is stopping weapons shipments. But of course they would say that. And I wanted to just sort of talk about this a little bit further, because one of the challenges here is that it is not going to be in Russia's interests to end this food crisis, aside from the financial benefits, which, are, of course, with, given the challenges the Russian economy is facing, is very severe and may well be a factor in trying to resume some kind of grain export from Ukraine and from Russia itself. Broadly speaking, the benefit for Russia of there not being a, a, solving, a solution to this food crisis is that it does put increasing pressure on the international community, which has been condemning Russia, um, to to uh, in in terms of ending the war early, much like the energy crisis, it is one of the few benefits uh, that Russia has uh, had, or I say benefits, more of a advantages in this conflict that uh, that that Russia has had. And so I'm not optimistic on the energy front, and I'm not optimistic on uh, on the food front either. But clearly, much negotiations taking place on both as we speak today, and so that's why I wanted to talk about them. Thank you very much, Francis. That was very comprehensive. Just before I bring Pavlo in, can I ask Roland just a couple of questions? Um, there's been an interesting report in the, in the Telegraph yesterday on uh, the problems that Vladimir Putin is facing recruiting soldiers for, for the army. Uh, and he's even turned to, to raiding prisons. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So as we know, this war is now about attrition, basically. Um, and both sides have got to replace men lost in the field. We're, we're seeing a pattern just to set the context. Um, it's kind of the pattern, actually, that the military thinkers have thought would the Third World War would follow, which is the professional armies would be depleted very, very quickly. And you're going to have to replace, um, replenish the ranks, um, basically, with uh, with volunteers, raw recruits. Um, and we can see the Ukrainians doing that. And the Russians are definitely, definitely having to do that. So um, very interesting things popping up. Um, the one that's really caught people's eyes is video from a prison um, in Adyghe, um, a Russian republic, um, where, where one of the prisoners using good salty prisoners kind of slang is talking about how guys have just been recruited um, to go and fight in Ukraine. Um, he says, you know, ah, oh, Vov is off as well, is he? Um, you know, everyone's going off there to fight or steal or something um, interspersed with a language I'll try not to use on this podcast. Um, so recruiting from prisons. Um, 
the, the British government obviously playing this up. They want to maximise any kind of difficulties the Russians are facing, to, um, noting how a lot of recruitment has come from um, uh, the poorest parts of Russia, um, noting that, you know, you don't really recruit from Moscow and St. Petersburg because the war is um, less popular there. I mean, the truth is that Moscow and St. Petersburg and places like that have a strong history of kind of avoiding the draft and that poorer parts of the country tend to supply troops. And that, that's been true for many, many years. I think that's quite um, important context. Um, the other interesting thing um, is just how much these people are being paid. So uh, PMC Wagner, the infamous mercenary group, um, which is doing a lot of the fighting in Ukraine, has put out advertisements. Um, they are offering contracts of you know, something like 240,000 rubles a month plus bonus, right? Now, that's, that's, that, <laughs> this is a country where, you know, a lot of people would be, would be happy to make 40,000 rubles a month. So it's a lot of money being put on the table um, to, to attract people to go and fight. Um, Russia's opponents in this war are saying, you know, this is evidence of desperation. Um, and, and it certainly looks like they are, they've got real concerns about getting enough men into uniform and into the trenches. Thanks, Roland. Um, just before we go to Francis, who I know has a few uh, thoughts on some other diplomatic um, news, can I just ask uh, just a, your quick take on on the HIMARS? I mean, we've seen them being deployed now for, for several days. And what's what's your take on their effectiveness and, and, and the damage they're doing to the Russians? So the, the HIMARS have become not only a feature of the battlefield, but a feature of the the information space, the propaganda war, whatever you want want to call it. Um, so they've definitely had a big impact. And when we talk about HIMARS, really, we're talking not just about the HIMARS. The HIMARS are one system. The Americans have given the Ukrainians eight of these systems. They're very accurate. They're very long range. But there's also a bunch of other Western provided high precision, long range artillery systems, which are doing the same kinds of jobs. And they seem to be working in concert um, with things like uh, Soviet-style Tochka U cruise missiles, which the Ukrainians already had. Um, but in short, they, the Ukrainians have been using these weapons to run a, a very, very systematic campaign of strikes deep in the Russian rear, focusing on uh, three things, ammunition dumps, fuel dumps, and command posts. And the idea is we cannot match them gun for gun, um, yet at the front. But if we can starve the Russians of uh, ammunition, it's going to make it much more difficult for them to fire off. You know, they were firing 20,000 shells a day at some point. Um, if you can stop that, those shells getting to the front, um, that's going to affect the Russian war effort. And of course, if you're taking out generals, command points, it's a very centralized system, the Russian army, um, very top down, big emphasis on, you know, doing what you're told as opposed to kind of initiative of commanders in the field, um, that is going to be disruptive. And it, it, I mean, the the results are, they are dramatic. There's no other way for it. I mean, people would have seen um, the this enormous mushroom cloud rising over uh, Novokarkova um, a couple of days ago. Last night, there was another one um, bang in the middle of uh, the city of Luhansk. Um, the Russians are responding, claiming these are, these are factories or, or, or um, civilian areas or um, fertilizer warehouses, this kind of thing, um, and that there are civilian casualties. I wouldn't be surprised if there are civilian casualties, quite honestly, because these things are enormous. When they explode, they go off in a very, very dramatic way. And, you know, there are people nearby. Um, is it working? Well, 
if you look, so NASA has this website where you can look at kind of wildfires and it's meant to monitor kind of wildfires around the world. But you can also use it to kind of monitor the, you know, satellites showing up hotspots fire in southern and eastern Ukraine. And that's dropped off dramatically over the past four days, which may or may not show a, a drop off in um, in Russian shelling. What we do know is that on the the kind of Russian blogosphere, which is surprisingly free um, and and kind of uncensored for now, the Russian military blogosphere, which is full of guys who, you know, very closely embedded with Wagner or, or the Russian army, quite outspoken, um, unrelentingly pro-Russian, unrelenting propagandists, but nonetheless, you know, these are guys who speak their minds and have definitely clashed with the military when, when they think things are being brushed under the carpet. Um, and the discussion there is, okay, we are being hammered. This is really bad. And why can't we do anything about it? And the consensus seems to be on the Russian side, look, A, our missile defences don't work, so we're helpless. Uh, things like the S-400, which was an extremely meant to be cutting edge, the most advanced air defense missile interception system on the market. Russia sold them all over the world, tried to. Um, it just, for some reason, cannot intercept um, these kinds of strikes. So they're helpless. Um, so the question is, what do you do? And there's a debate going on about the responses. The responses include dispersal. So move your artillery dumps, your, your ammunition dumps to you know, different places, keep them smaller, camouflage them, make them more difficult to find, all of that. Now, there's a problem with that. And the problem is that Russia's artillery logistics um, are basically reliant on these very huge dumps. Basically, Russian logistics is based on the railways. If you look at the failure of the um, offensive against Kiev early in the war, it kind of corresponds with a failure to take the railheads. They didn't take Sumy, they didn't take Kharkiv. Um, those railway lines were meant to sustain um, the Russian advance. They couldn't, and so they were loading trucks. When when you get the artillery to to the railhead, you take the the shells off the train, you put it onto trucks. Trucks take it to the uh, to the frontline units. Those trucks were having to travel much much longer distances than expected. Um, they took a long time to get through. The Russians weren't getting enough ammunition, and those convoys were vulnerable to ambush. Now, in Donbass, it's worked. The railways have delivered a huge amount of artillery, and it's sustained this 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 incredible intensity of fire that's driven the Ukrainians back. Um, now, that was fine, as long as those big ammunition dumps that you end up developing near the railheads are invulnerable, and now they are vulnerable. So if you're going to move them back out of range of the HIMARS, you know, so you've got to move back, you know, at least kind of 80 kilometers from the front line, you're back to this point where you're going to be loading things onto trucks, taking them a very long way. The roads in Donbass are absolutely atrocious, by the way, and that's before the war. Um, it could take you hours to cover, you know, a, a couple of hundred kilometers on what should be, um, what on the map is a normal road. So that's going to have an impact. Um, a lot of people talk about also that Russia hasn't modernized its logistics, right? They're not no forklift trucks, everything's done by hand. Um, the ammunition comes in wooden boxes, so that takes up a lot of room, so you're not transporting as much ammunition as you should be. I mean, I personally don't really think that is the problem. I think the problem is that until now they were operating um, as if these, these ammunition dumps were invulnerable. They are vulnerable. There doesn't seem to be much they can do about it. Um, and however they respond, it's going to be very difficult for them, I think, to maintain the pace of the pace of fire, just the intensity of fire, which has 
basically underwritten their military success so far. But we've yet to see how this is actually going to play out. We're still going to have to watch for the next couple of weeks, maybe over summer, to confirm that that is what's happening, that the, that the Russians are in trouble and they can't move forward anymore. Well, thank you very, very much for that, Roland. That was incredibly comprehensive. And um, hopefully for our listeners, really shone some light over the issues uh, the Russian army are facing in dealing with these these HIMARS and and other pieces of artillery delivered to the Ukrainian army from from Western nations. Um, Our guest for today is Pavlo Bondarenko. Pavlo, thank you so much for joining us. Um, Just to start off, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Tell us tell us where you're calling from in Ukraine and what the atmosphere is, is like there. Uh, hi there, my name is Pavel Bondarenko. I'm a civil activist and uh, a podcast producer, but now I'm trying to be a volunteer who actively help in uh, Ukrainian army with high-tech gear. Uh, so uh, I'm I'm coming you from Kiev. Uh, we currently have uh, air, active uh, air raid alarm, so uh, I might be go to a basement um, if uh, there will be some explosions, but hope that everything will be okay. Uh, this is like the, 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 the shot in uh, bio uh, that I can provide. Thank you very much. Can you tell us about, um, you say you're an activist and you, you know you're fundraising high-tech gear for the army. Um, what, what kind of gear is that and how did you get into that? Uh, yeah, uh, mostly what we are doing is uh, drones, uh, optics and uh, medical supplies. So um, um, air, air intelligence is uh, like a really important part of this uh, of this uh, war because uh, we have this this so-called war of artillery. So we need eyes and we need a lot of uh, data together to understand what we should do. Uh, so drones are a big part of um, of activities. Also optics like thermal cameras, uh, rangefinders, they are also a really important thing. And uh, there's constant lack of this stuff and it's uh, it's, actu- it's actively um, uh, lost by, by our army. So we need to restock uh, the supply and also medical medical gears like individual first aid kits and uh, some uh, stuff for hospitals. Uh, they are also in, uh, in, in active use, so we need to resupply them. We work like a small uh, volunteer initiative. Uh, this is actually an initiative by running by me, my girlfriend and my mother. And we are working like with uh, 15 uh, squads uh, and we are working them on uh, like a regular basis. So we try to resupply them with all the stuff we need, and uh, we not 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 like a big volunteering fund. We are working like in a more rapid way, but in a much smaller size than big Ukrainian volunteer funds. And you've 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 been uh, been an activist and been volunteering since not just for this war, but since 2014. Can you can you tell us a little bit about uh, the Revolution of Dignity and and your role in it? Yeah, actually, uh, um, my plan uh, when I, uh, when the revolution of dignity happened in 2013, I was 18 years old, and then my plan was to uh, to finish university in Ukraine and move somewhere in Europe. Uh, I supposedly wanted to go to to the Netherlands and to become some kind of uh, like music producer guy or something like that. Uh, but then um, this decision uh, by that time Ukrainian government ran by uh, Yanukovych. Uh, uh, came that uh, we were gonna join this um, this Russian backed uh, um, union, and uh, this was actually like a fire started for me, and this is why the revolution of dignity happened, uh, and uh, this is uh, the first time when I understood that uh, actually how I feel 
how it feels to be a citizen of my country. Uh, so uh, it's, it started with uh, with desire to be a part of Europe, and then it shifted to desire to be a part of uh, open civil society. And um, this is like a really important uh, stage of my life because it shifted uh, a lot of things. Also, this is what the first time when I saw dead bodies and a lot of blood and I understood that these uh, things like freedom and dignity are paid uh, by a really high price and they are paid by, by lies. And this is actually what uh, motivates me to continue my efforts to build a strong civil society in Ukraine because uh, the price is too damn high uh, because a lot of people were murdered, murder people were killed. Uh, and uh, this is why I continue my efforts as a civil activist and a volunteer. In June, you, you tweeted, you said, today I've realized that I've completely forgotten what it is to, fe- um, what it is to feel like being safe. Yes. And I, want to, I wanted to ask for you, I mean, this is true for you, but I imagine also millions and millions of other Ukrainians. And this is, we're in, we're in July now and the war still rages on. How, how do you see you and your friends and your family dealing with the pressure of the conflict? How do you get through it? Uh, you just need to, 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 to do basic security, just not ignoring air, uh, raid alerts. alerts. Uh, if you have, uh, uh, if you have a, uh, possibility to evacuate from active uh, running part of like uh, offensive when you should go and uh, it's not uh, I'm, not, I'm not thinking about a lot of my security it's like a constant you're, you're absolutely right it says it's it's uh, uh, constant pressure um, but uh, now it's a little bit better because uh, like in first months uh, especially when uh, offensive was going on on Kiev region it felt like a non-stop uh, thing. We were sweeping for three, four hours at our bus because we uh, were doing uh, a lot of stuff uh, and uh, war, war felt really close because we I actually, we actually heard the, like explosions and all of the stuff on a regular basis. Uh, but then uh, when uh, this, this, this stage of war uh, ended and um, more, the biggest action started on east of Ukraine. It became more distant, uh, they, and uh, it became more manageable because you get in a routine, you understand your capacity, you understand that you can uh, fundraise that amount of money and, and not uh, other amount of money. So uh, you understand uh, and uh, some basic planning appears. Uh, the, base, uh, the, the, the most uh, productive thing for me uh, to counter um, this pressure is uh, planning. So I have, uh, for, now, for now, I have like this great opportunity to plan for one week in advance because at the beginning of uh, this stage of war, we were we were planning for in advance for hours, and now it's like a little bit more controllable, uh, but still a lot of pressure. So uh, it's, it it takes effort to get the proper sleep, to get the proper food, to get the proper physical exercises. But uh, it's it feels like uh, my responsibility as a volunteer because if uh, I'm in. Uh, good shape i can be productive and help uh, ukrainian army and also i also understand that uh, uh, this war will will be go on so uh, if uh, i need to to grab a gun and to become a soldier i also need to be prepared and uh, in good fitness so this is actually like the general overview of how i'm dealing with the pressure if i could just jump in there it's fascinating hearing your perspective um 
my, I've got so many questions. Uh, hard to know where to start, really. I suppose my first one would just be as somebody who has been involved in this work for much longer than than just this year. Did the invasion come as a surprise to you, or or the opposite? Was this something that you've been expecting for some time? I was expecting it for some time. Thank you for the question. Uh, actually, my boss started like my mom called me and said that uh, she heard explosions. I looked in, in Twitter that uh, the war has started and I just went to a storage room, uh, grab a box with prepared stuff because I bought some food supplies, some batteries, some other like uh, stuff to survive for three days. Uh, because this is the reality of Ukraine that you need to you you live in this constant pressure, so you need to be prepared for this kind of stuff. And there were like no panic. And uh, also, this is like a really strange but uh, funny feeling that at first uh, few uh, weeks I felt like this is like long term, uh, long forget feeling because it was all the same that was happening in 2014. And um, in terms of uh, like uh, mental and uh, physical awareness, this uh, stage of war is much easier for me because um, there are a lot of patterns patterns of uh, stuff that happened in 2014. So um, you 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 get used to that, and uh, there are not a lot of, of shock of um, like um, you adapted to this stuff. So uh, it's much easier uh, to 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 keep um, like pace. Uh, the, in, in this stage than in 2014. Uh, but yes, um, like most of people who are active part of civil society, or uh, society in general, uh, was preparing for this uh, for this offensive. Uh, the only question was when, because uh, uh, everybody thought that it will be happen in January, but uh, then uh, we, uh, the February, it moved to February, and actually uh, I was fully prepared for for that stuff uh, but i continued my uh, like um, uh, my my business efforts and all other efforts in a simple pace because there was no um, no space for fear because you need to keep your job doing and then if there were games then you you should to react to it thank you and just one other question relating to that just for the benefit of our listeners as somebody who's been involved in this for for a long time um, and has seen this coming. Just what, how has Ukrainian society itself, perhaps even Ukrainian government, uh, changed in, in in recent years? With the election, obviously, of President Zelensky, for many people, it, it was a sort of vote against the Ukrainian political establishment. But just try, I'm just very interested in how you've sensed a feeling in Ukrainian government and, and attitudes towards the government over the time that you've been involved in your work. Okay, um, I would I would say that uh, uh, I won't I won't judge by government. I will judge by cases because uh, like um, the two the, the two most me, me, media uh, mo, like um, the the, mo, the the most uh, the biggest case that got the biggest media reach was the case of murdering Katerina Hanzuk. Uh, she was a prominent. Uh, uh, civil society activist and politician in Kherson. Uh, she was murdered by the, uh, with uh, one liter of, of acid. And uh, also there was an attempt of, um, of um, bringing to jail Serhii Sternenko, uh, also a Ukrainian uh, activist who, was, uh, who had three times uh, assassinated. But survived, and um, in this time, and I don't, um, I don't like uh, 
try to uh, give um, impression about the government, uh, about uh, Poroshenko, Zelensky, or I, I, I'm working uh, to make the system better. So uh, in this in this definite case, surnames uh, didn't uh, give uh, a big uh, didn't give a big help to understand what is going on. Uh, I think that uh, like uh, the biggest thing that was happening is was uh, the problem with. Uh, police uh, system and uh, with cards and uh, because this is like uh, the two biggest reforms that ukraine still needs to to move on because we need to reload again our uh, police uh, and uh, we need to reload our cards uh, there are a lot of effort to make it happen but uh, due to um, some um, some russian baked people some and uh, just regular corruptionist uh, this uh, thing is moving really slow but um, what was what what was happening that a lot of things were improving but uh, still like basic reforms uh, need to be to be made and i think uh, this is like a responsibility of all civil society and not just one politician so uh, this is like the overview that i can give you at the moment that's so fascinating um, to hear your take on that. Um, my question is, you made, you made a reference there to saying you want to work to make the system better, and that transcends whoever is president. What does the perfect Ukrainian state look like to you? What are you working towards? I think that, um, that dignity and justice are implemented in, in uh, all the of the of the basic principles of how uh, government works and how uh, like social and economic uh, policies are made and um, because there are a big problem i think not only in ukraine but uh, all, all in the world that there are a lot of written promises but they are actually not baked by any any mechanism any any um anything about without except what so i think uh the, per, the first uh, and the biggest uh, uh, result for me will be justice in cards uh, that uh, if uh, someone some person is corrupted and it ends ends up uh, in court uh, then uh, he goes to jail uh, he didn't uh, await uh, the punishment and runs away away from country i think that's like be a good marker of that uh, we are succeeded in um in a, in a building a better system because if uh, corruption is not punished uh, there will be no uh, uh, further movement uh, in a building better society uh, also i think that uh, like um, we uh, like uh, when people st stop fearing police and uh, will uh, treat police with respect um then uh, and general approval and trust in society will be big in police uh, in police area we will be able to end this like a security request of society and then uh, move on to uh, building better, better education um, implementing uh, more uh, and bigger culture activities uh, you you will argue with me that uh, you need to do all of this stuff uh, in uh, like uh, in parallel i agree with you but uh, um, this is like my priority looks like because i think um, ukrainians uh, are doing this mistake of uh, forgetting and forgiving and uh, not trying to uh, bring to the end uh, the corruption that is happening in, in uh, ukrainian government and society thank you very much pavlo for that i've just got a question just to bring you back to your fundraising uh, yeah. it's sort of a simple question really but from from the West, I think we see lots and lots of people, lots and lots of Ukrainians fundraising. So can you just tell us, how, how do you actually do that? 
And have you seen a difference over the months in terms of the amounts people are donating? Yeah, sure. Um, like um, this is like the big uh, thing that a lot of people from um, like Europe or America can understand uh, how you can donate to a physical person, not like um, like a big organization, and uh, why uh, Ukrainians trust uh, completely com- complete strangers. Uh, but yes, uh, this is actually how how, how we do it uh, uh, with my girlfriend and with my mother. Uh, we're just uh, gathering money on our private accounts at the moment because uh, the amount of donation, in our opinion, is not so um, big uh, to build uh, like a legal fund or NGO. Um, and uh, we fundraise mostly via Twitter. Uh, so it's like we have like um, like a weekly request of stuff that we need to uh, to purchase from uh, squads we are supporting. We build this like a uh, spreadsheet. Uh, we get the prices in Europe uh, because uh, stuff in Europe is much cheaper. And uh, we have friends in Europe who are able to procure it. And then we transfer it uh, from Europe to uh, to Ukraine. And uh, these donations came from like random people from internet. Uh, some of them are new, uh, are my friends, but mostly um, I like to say that uh, now um, that my, my reputation uh, and uh, works for me, and people have a trust uh, for what for activity that they uh, made in in previous years. So they trust me money, and uh, this is my big mission to prove that trust. And this is why we try to uh, to make everything, every process as transparent as, as possible. And also, uh, sometimes uh, like it's not possible to give like a proper um, uh, report on, on and to, to give us like fancy photos of soldiers holding the stuff that was purchased. Uh, but we try to do do our best to to, to be transparent. And uh, this is how um, a lot of people are fundraising. This is like not like really unique situation. A lot of people do this stuff. And I'm really glad because uh, uh, with every new person who uh, raises money, it uh, puts a pressure from us because we, we knew that there are other people. Uh, yes, there are big uh, problem with, with uh, scammers, but uh, this is a natural process. And uh, in terms of uh, like, um, uh, like, um, building uh, a legal legal fund to prevent uh, scam uh, this is actually doesn't work in ukraine because a few cases of a big scam were from illegal entities like uh, like um, like like funds so um, this is and this is how and this is what uh, people from west don't understand when they donate to international red cross or some other big um, big in- international organization and uh, but uh, I understand why they do that because it is like a, a really different background of understanding understanding how things work. Thank you very much, Pavlo. I've just got one more question. I'm, I'm in, in case so I'll ask that, and then Roland and Francis, if you'd like to come in after that. Um, my final question is obviously you're as you said you fundraise on Twitter. You're on Twitter a lot. Um, what would you want our listeners, particularly those maybe in America or the UK, in the West of Europe or Australia, what what would you want them to really understand about your experience and the experience of Ukrainians um, at the moment that that they won't understand unless you know unless unless you tell us? Uh, I think this is like uh, like uh, constant desla- desire to blame uh, like others on uh, your problem and uh, constant expecting. 
um, other people, other countries to work uh, to protect you, I guess. And uh, I think that uh, it's our responsibility as Ukrainians to protect ourselves, and uh, it's it's no big deal to ask help. And we and I greatly appreciate people who actually actually help us with uh, weapons, with spreading information, money, all this stuff. And uh, but this is like our responsibility. We are we are like self-established and uh, and 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 pretty strong civil society that has a lot of experience of of practice of building civil society and the practice of defending our rights we we know how to do it we need help but we like um, we're not this type of lost uh, society that needs guidance uh, we we are happy to to get the feedback but Mm, not like uh, lecturing us on the stuff how we should do that or, or do something or, or without getting a reply from us. And uh, also, I think that uh, uh, if you think that the biggest problem is the price of uh, gas or price of food, um, you don't get uh, the, the thing that the biggest problem is that um, we are constantly losing people. People are constantly murdered. And, uh, and a lot of people are uh, murdered because they try to to solve the problem for example with uh, with uh, bread and um, the longer uh, we will avoid to understand the root of this problem and uh, try to to min minimize damage and not to try to, to to resolve the issue with russia the longer and we will suffer and um, a little and the much more people will suffer so I think I think this is like the two points I want to to tell to the world. Well, thank you very much for that, Pavlo. Can I just ask Roland and Francis? Uh, do you have any final questions for Pavlo? Yeah, I've, I've, hi, Pavlo. Hi. Um, <laughs> there's 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 a lot I could ask. I mean, I suppose my real question is going back to everything you were saying about um, dealing with the police and 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 activism after my dad. I mean, you kind of said your war began, you know in 2014 and 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 you you know you were already kind of ready for this i'm quite interested i think i think that's true for a lot of people but i'm quite interested in in the following i mean do, do you really see this as in a way a continuation of this war as a continuation of that struggle that that began on maidan with a lot of people like you basically coming out against corruption and then and the other thing is before this war began, and I think you kind of touched on this, how optimistic, what was your kind of feeling before this began, before there was a, Russia invaded the second time, um, about the success of that campaign? And w were you feeling lonely? Were you feeling like, God, we've put in all this effort over over eight years? And, and you know, you, you talked about 2018 and, and those attacks on journalists and things like that. Um, you know, how optimistic were you at that point about... Um, the changes Ukraine was going through, or were, were you feeling a little bit demoralized? Okay, uh, thanks. Uh, uh, sure thing. This war is, uh, is a part of, of it's it's like a, a follow up of Maidan, uh, uh, and uh, this is this is completely clear to me because uh, Russia uh, Russian ideology can't let go Ukraine and make it independent country. Uh, but in terms of uh, like a second before the second stage of this war um it was like a, it was a, 
like a delayed question. Um, uh, I, I don't understand how to, to, trans, to, to uh, translate it in, uh, in English, but uh, everybody understood that it would happen and uh, we need to prepare that uh, Russia won't disappear. It won't, uh, it, it didn't, it, it won't pull out uh, their army. And uh, we just have like a breathing space to prepare ourselves to uh, to get get enough enough of uh, resources. And uh, the the one question was how much time do we have? And when uh, build up first time happened, uh, I, I I think in 2021 in uh, in May. Uh, then it was like the first time when it was like a, a big alarm for us. But uh, when the final build up of uh, of uh, Russians in uh, in in, Be uh, in Belarus happened, it was like just a, a, a question of of weeks. So I think that uh, we nobody was depressed. Uh, everybody who was like following the processes that are happening in uh, our region and in our country was understanding that uh, it's just a matter of time and uh, it's our responsibility. Uh, to persuade our partners, to persuade uh, uh, international partners, to persuade uh, our um, citizens uh, and our friends to be prepared and to be aware of the situation. So uh, it's it, it's it's a lot of like um, like um, effort, and uh, it's, it's, it's it takes a lot of stress on, on your body and your mind, but not not a lot of despair. Just uh, I think more more anger than despair. I was yeah. Uh, I was I was kind of interested in you know the kind of the process of kind of internal reform, right? The campaign for a new Ukraine, you know, setting aside the whole Russia thing. You talked about you know corruption in the police, um, all these kinds of things. Um, and I remember, you know, on, on my on my trips to Ukraine, kind of since my dam, um, you know, coming across a degree of kind of disillusionment um a little bit of fed upness like uh, have we actually managed to to kind of change the country but we're still dealing with this all these problems um before it's that kind of thing i mean where were you about on that kind of thing especially considering what you said about um those journalists being attacked in in 2018 uh i i i i i feel like disappointment and anger but uh, also as a person uh, I understand that uh, all the changes that we were made uh, starting from 2013 are really astonishing and uh, it takes a lot of time to build a proper society and uh, with what Ukrainian society managed to do like in, uh, in uh, nine years and even less uh, have an active offensive on its, on its country uh, is is astonishing. I um, and uh, the things were much worse in 2012. We have like free country, like not free country, but peaceful country without war and all of this stuff. But actually, the condition of civil society was much worse, and uh, there were not there were not a lot of freedom, and uh, it's uh, it's our price for delayed reforms. Uh, because uh, my uh, the generation of my parents didn't uh, knew uh, didn't have the skill set and uh, like uh, a mental um, understanding of what to do back in 90s. Uh, this is the price of uh, delayed reforms. So uh, this is why uh, the delays. Uh, in, in current reforms are frustrating me because I understand that they will be like uh, 
a question for next generation. So the pace is uh, good, uh, but uh, there are a lot of uh, struggles and uh, a lot of things that uh, need constantly uh, monitored by civil society. And I think that we are doing pretty good, but uh, there are always a room for improvement. I just have one final question for you, Pavlo, which is you spoke about how you, in a, in a sense, you, this was never something that you want. The work you're doing now is not something that you necessarily wanted to do, but it's something you felt obligated morally to do. Assuming that war ends and, and you, peace is restored to Ukraine and sovereignty is restored to Ukraine, what would you like to do in, in an ideal world in this new Ukraine that you have been part of building? Uh, actually, <laughs> it's a really good question because I don't know, because all uh, my conscious life, I was thinking about uh, my job uh, and uh, my way of uh, like getting money and uh, the stuff I was doing in terms of protecting and uh, building civil society. And uh, I actually didn't have a lot of time to to uh, have uh, to to think about what is what what I like. Uh, it was always what I need to do. Uh, but I think uh, in terms of uh, like what I want to do, I want to to, to join to to the government, I guess. But uh, it will be um, and to 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 be involved in reforms. Uh, I have experience of uh, being part of uh, Ministry of Healthcare uh, in Ukraine, or Ukraine, sorry, and uh, it was a really interesting experience for me. So. I might be interested to join uh, the government in the future, but only in terms when uh, there will be a really low corruption risks and uh, good salary, because this is was this is why uh, I lived uh, this uh, this government type of job uh, for for future, because uh, to to be uh, to be in government in Ukraine you need to be resilient to corruption. You need to have enough money. Uh, to refuse a bribe and all of the stuff. Uh, so I think this is like uh, what uh, the conditions wh- when I will enter the government. Uh, but uh, I think that uh, I, I I I think I only can uh, at this at this point of life I only can think about of how to improve society, how to give more power to it. And this is only the the only thing that I'm interested in uh, to uh, to build my future. Well, thank you very much, Pablo. Thank you, Francis, for your questions. Uh, Roland, any further questions from you or shall we go to our final thoughts? I, I have a question, if it's OK. And, and I know it's one please, that please. I, it's, I, I know this is one that is kind of touched on kind of ad nauseum. And, and I think Ukrainians and maybe to kind of get fed up with it. But I think it might help our listeners in a way to touch on this. Okay. Um, I, I was reading I was reading um, a thread, Pablo, that you, you wrote you know, a while ago saying that, you know, after Maidan, you, you, you were, you were born as a, you know, born and raised as a Russian speaker, Russian is your native language. And then you chose to stop using Russian, um, and switch to Ukrainian. Um, and the, the language issue can be, it can be hackneyed. It can be twisted for propaganda in various ways. It can be presented in a very, um, you know, two dimensional kind of way. But I, I was wondering if you could just your personal experience, like why did you make that decision? Okay, um, 
Yeah, sure. Uh, this is was uh, because I met uh, Ulana Suprun. Uh, she was uh, actually a former uh, Minister of Healthcare of Ukraine. But in 2014, she was uh, running this NGO Patriot Defense that was in charge of um, of providing uh, individual first aid kits uh, for army. And she was uh, born and raised in America, but she is part of diaspora. So, so uh, she knew only English and Ukrainian. And this was like the first person in my life who, who couldn't understand Russian. And this is what the first time in my life when I asked the question in Russian and she stared at me without understanding what did I, uh, what, what did I ask. And this is like a misconception that uh, uh, Russian and Ukrainian are like similar languages, they're different. This is because um, uh, of our Soviet uh, like legacy, uh, the level of understanding in uh, Russian is uh, big, but this was like a turning point for me. Like, wow, like there is like a person that can't understand Russian. And this was like the first uh, the first uh, signal. Second one was that uh, I actually hated to see a Russian flag on my MacBook when I was typing <laughs> uh, in, um, in, um, in Russian. But then I just understood that when you switch to, um, to Ukrainian, you actually find uh, a much interesting uh, space of people because uh, they are more west oriented they uh, know english good and they consume uh, like uh, uh, like global uh, global media and uh, and uh, when and this is actually imp kind of improved my quality of life because the people i met when i switched to to ukrainian um, uh, they are among much more interesting persons and this is like the big the big problem with uh, with russian is that uh, People think that um, Russia is a part of like of um, like a think tank, of regional think tank, uh, but uh, and we should trust uh, the thoughts from Russia. But actually, this is not true because this is just like recycled ideas from West. And uh, if you and this thing for Ukrainians is much important to learn English than uh, than Russian. And I think that because I was connected, I, I was uh, I started to learn uh, English when I was four. And uh, I, 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 I could speak uh, English pretty good when I was eight, I guess. So I was all constantly connected with the Western type of media. And this is why the speech to Ukrainian didn't uh, get me a, a big pain of losing content and all of this stuff. So at first it was just like, um, like a really impulse. It was an impulse. And then it was like a complete decision for me. And now I just don't think a lot of uh, about it. It's not like a political decision for me now. It's just a, 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 a how I live. It's more comfortable to me to, to speak Ukrainian and uh, actually forgot how to type, type in Russian. So yeah, from, for now, it's just uh, just my like day, daily, uh, daily routine. And uh, I actually saw that a lot of people switched to Ukrainian in recent years. And uh, this, is, uh, this is just how things go. And uh, uh, without any aggression against people who speak uh, Russian, uh, like a, a great community of, of intellectuals, uh, musicians, uh, art performance, and uh, are building. And this is like a, a community of people who 
made the decision to switch to Ukrainians because they feel like Ukrainians. And uh, I think this is like a, a big, uh, a big, a big, a big, big point that people should understand that uh, Ukrainian nation is not ethnic; it's political, and you can be be Ukrainian by decision. And uh, this is like the big uh, thing that we are standing on. And uh, so, um, I think this is like. The, the the broader uh, answer that you ask, but uh, I think that it's important to give a context. No, thank you, thank you very very much for that. I mean, I I, I was going to follow. I think you answered actually. I was going to follow up. Like, what's the? Do you think there's a single big misconception around the kind of language um, debate in the West or how it's how it's discussed um, uh, in Western media? I mean, the thing the thing I tend to tell people is like, you know, look, there's a bunch of. Um, there's a huge number of, of Ukrainian soldiers, you know, fighting for, for Ukraine and East who are, who are native Russian speakers. Um, but do you think that there, is there one thing that you think that a way that that issue is maybe misrepresented um, in the West? Yeah, I think that uh, people who uh, it's, it's who, people who, um, who try to uh, speak on the field of only language uh, making a big misconception because it's about culture. It's about uh, like uh, it's it's geopolitical question, and uh, it's about of it's about uh, of spreading like uh, Russian baked ideas. And uh, in this case, language is a part of uh, of warfare. And um, I think the other misconception is that. Mm, People think that Ukrainian language can be predatory. That uh, Ukrainians are, are the, 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 the the guys who make an offense. But actually, I don't understand how language that was banned by Russians for a lot of years and uh, was tried to be extinguished by uh, Russian government a few times and is still alive. How it can be offensive uh, for Russians? I think um, a lot of people uh, misunderstand that. Uh, Ukrainians are just try to build their country, try to build their culture and their space uh, without any desire to make an impact on other countries or other cultures and try to and uh, to, to to bring pain. Uh, and uh, people and uh, sure this process is uh, is can, can be it's it's really rapid. So. Uh, people, I think, uh, see aggression uh, where just people try to build their country on their terms, and I think this is completely alright because we are not trying. Uh, we're not trying to tell other people what should what should they do. We're just trying to build our country. Thank you for that. Well, thank you very much, Pablo. Thank you, Roland, and thank you, Francis. Um, I think we're almost at the end of our time, unfortunately, Pablo. It's been absolutely fascinating speaking to you, and thank you for answering all of our questions. Um, it was a, 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 marathon, a marathon from from you, so thank you hugely for your time. Can I just ask Roland Francis and and then finally Pablo for your final thoughts? What should um, our listeners be thinking of and looking to in the week ahead? Well, yes, absolutely fascinating hearing Pablo. So thank you very much for your time. Just to reiterate what David said there, um, much to, to, to ponder. Um, but I just wanted to, I suppose, as a final thought, pick up on 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 something that Pablo was saying there um, in relation to. The Russian language and the challenge of casting off sort of Russian culture, because it reminded me of a piece in the uh, in the Economist, which I would recommend that that people read. I believe it was in this week's edition. Um, it's an interview with Boris Bondarev, who is a former Russian diplomat, and he talks about 
how the invasion of Ukraine drove him to resign from Russia's UN team in Geneva. And it's just a very interesting piece um, talking about what it is like being in a sort of a, a mode of thinking, of course, of which language is a part um, that obviously has huge consequences for how one sees the world. And he talks, and I'm quoting here, as anti-Western propaganda intensified, older diplomats immediately recalled their seemingly forgotten Soviet era skills. Cables from over the world began resembling old Soviet headlines from the 1930s. I read cables which contained almost only slogans, insults of Western delegations and low quality cliches. Professionalism was finally replaced by propaganda. Now it has become much more dangerous as the Russian leadership relies on such reports and configures foreign policy on information that is either entirely or almost entirely false. And I just think it speaks to, to what Pavlo was saying about the importance of of truth and the importance of um, what choosing to to live in a different way of thinking. Um, because that's clearly what this diplomat did. And um, he writes very eloquent about, uh, eloquently about that experience and the implications for doing so on the war and also on calling on, on other colleagues to do the same. So I just thought, I think that will be my, my final thought. Thank you very much, Francis. Um, Roland Oliphant, what are your final thoughts for today? Mm, I, could, I could speak at length about what this war might do to Russia and its and its internal psychology, but um, um, I, I, I'm focused on on the developments of today. Look, there there is a meeting going on in Istanbul right now between Ukrainian, Turkish, and Russian delegations about getting that food out, and I mean that everyone should be following that. Um, the whole world will be following that. Um, the food issue is a massive, massive issue, and we're going to see more of that I mean, we talked about the energy issue today right and, and what's going to happen in winter um um keep your eyes um on that because the inflation the knock-on effects from this war are only going to intensify i think in the coming months thank you roland thank you francis pavlo as our, as our guest would you like the our very final thoughts yeah uh i would like uh, just to remind you that during our conversation there were two two rockets hit the parisia uh, city and the, the guy that this war is physical it's not in twitter and um it's 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 actually about people dying and protect for in protecting a uh, country and uh, i also like um, to answer i guess francis that um, even while we're talking about Ukraine and uh, Ukraine and Ukrainian perspective we still uh, talk about it from russian perspective and russian optics so i think it's really important to uh, mind yourself uh, if you are a part of like a Russian narrative or you're just uh, getting an info about them. So be aware and uh, uh, don't trust any, any source that uh, is connected with Russians uh, and do a proper fact check with that. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Roland. Thank you, Francis. And thank you very, very much, Pavlo, for, for your time today. Thank you for answering all of our questions. Uh, it's hugely appreciated. And it just goes for me to say that Ukraine The Latest is a podcast as well as a Twitter space. If you like listening on Twitter, this is the most fruitful place for you to do that. Uh, the broadcast is available, uh, is the recorded uh, broadcast is available shortly after we end it. So that will be up very, very shortly. So if you've heard some of Pavlo's 
answers from the from, uh, in recent minutes and want to go back to the beginning of 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 of, of what um of what he's talking about please do that on twitter elsewhere you can find us on all of your podcast apps so you can search ukraine the latest find us there do leave a review do um get in touch if you've got questions uh, for us or if you've got thoughts or critiques we do welcome them it's extremely extremely helpful to have them it's how we uh, craft these um these these episodes and to think about what how we can best represent what's going on and best share the news with you so finally thank you very much roland thank you francis and thank you so much pavlo for your time have a very good afternoon thank you everyone